Bruce. Thank you, worship team. Hope that got you excited to hear God's word this morning. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, guys. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Our passage this morning is a very familiar one. It's Luke records for us here the events that we refer to or typically refer to as Palm Sunday, even though Luke, interestingly enough, does not mention the waving of the palm branches and the laying them before uh, the, the, the donkey that Jesus rode on his way to Jerusalem. But this is Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal procession toward the city of Jerusalem. Of course, this is the ending point of his earthly ministry. But it's also at this point on Palm Sunday going to initiate the series of events that culminates in his death and resurrection. This is the beginning of, in Luke's gospel of, of whole, what we call Holy Week, the beginning of, of that last week of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. What I want to take a look at today is the significance of this triumphal procession, particularly how it is important for our understanding of Jesus and how it informs our understanding of how people respond to him. What is the significance of the triumphal procession for understanding the identity of Jesus? And what is the significance of this procession for understanding of how human beings respond to Jesus? Those are the questions we want to answer this morning as we examine our text. So, if you'll look at Luke chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 28 and read to verse 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem... When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So I want to make three observations this morning from this passage. There's nothing earth-shattering here. There's nothing new that you don't already know. But they are fundamental to our understanding of Christ and, again, how people respond to him. So the first observation is the main one, the one where we'll spend most of our time. Observation number one Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. Now, verses 28 through 40 chart that last leg of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As you remember back, maybe, maybe not, it's been a while. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began a trek to Jerusalem. He, was, he set his face to Jerusalem. And so over the course of the last year of his life, Jesus has been moving very deliberately, very intentionally, maybe not necessarily geographically. He's been kind of wandering around. But he's been moving purposely to Jerusalem. The last place that we saw him was in Jericho. He healed the blind man there at the end of chapter 18. He brought salvation to Zacchaeus in his house. He told the parable of the ten minas. And in those things, Jesus is ministering in Jericho. And once that ministry wraps up, he departs Jericho and heads to his final destination, which is, again, Jerusalem, where he's going to be fulfilling his messianic mission, the reason for which the Father sent him, which is to to, to offer the sacrifice that would make redemption for God's people. Well, as he nears Jerusalem, Luke tells us in verse 29, he approaches the villages of Bethphage and Bethany, 
These are two small villages on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about two miles east of Jerusalem. I've got a map up there for you so you can kind of see. Jericho would be on the eastern end, just due east. It's kind of cut off from the map there. But you can see Jesus is actually very close. He's nearing Jerusalem, about two miles away on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Just has to go around or over. I'm not sure the direction there. But to go across the Mount of Olives and then down into the ravine there, uh, the Valley of Kidron, and then he will be in Jerusalem. But as he enters these two, or about to enter these two villages, he sends two of his disciples on ahead to bring back a donkey for him to ride into the city of Jerusalem. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. This journey from Bethany and Bethphage into Jerusalem is what we refer to as a triumphal entry. Jesus is going to ride in a triumphal way, in a way that celebrates and acknowledges that he is the true king of Israel. He is the rightful heir to David's throne. He is the, he is the promised Messiah, the one whom God said in the Old Testament to his people Israel, he would send to them to destroy their enemies and to establish his kingdom and to save them for eternity. Now, this triumphal procession is the first and only time that Jesus permits himself to be celebrated in this way. This seems very out of place when we read the Gospels, does it not? Jesus very much in humility. Jesus sometimes telling people not to tell others about him. Jesus kind of serving in the crowd, but not really drawing attention to himself. So this is really the first and only time where Jesus allows himself to be celebrated and acknowledged in this, this triumphal way. Well, this is important because this is an appropriate way, it's a fitting way, for Jesus to further reveal his Messiahship to Israel. This triumphal procession is sort of a, another, another, another testimony, another aspect of revealing that he is the Messiah to his people Israel. Now, Jesus had been revealing himself as the Messiah to Israel during his ministry, right? His teaching, his miracles... They demonstrated Jesus' divine uniqueness and was fulfilling those prophetic predictions that the prophets had made about the Messiah in the Old Testament. The fact that Jesus had come and was ministering in this supernatural way was testimony that God was doing a new thing. A new age had come. With Jesus, God had sort of broken into this present evil age to put down all of those powers that had raised themselves up against him. He had come, Jesus had come to, to bring deliverance and salvation to ravage and enslaved and condemned people. He'd come to save them. He'd come to redeem them. The evidence of this new day, the fact that this was indeed a new day, was by two means. Up to this point, it's by primarily two means. Jesus' teaching, in which he proclaimed the gospel, the message of salvation, that good news had come with the arrival of God's kingdom. And also through his miracles, where Jesus displayed supernatural power, power that distinguished him from other ordinary human beings. And those miracles also gave testimony to the kind of transformation that Jesus was bringing. Now, most of us American Christians, 21st century Christians, when we hear the word Messiah, we typically think of salvation. We think of Jesus as Savior as Redeemer. We're thinking of that, that spiritual quality of, of forgiveness of sins and giving us new life. But let's not forget that an obvious and probably more expected aspect of Jesus' Messiahship to God's people is His kingship. This idea of the Messiah being king is essential to understanding what a Messiah, what the Messiah really is. I'm not going to go through the whole history of that. I've done that in other sermons. But the word Messiah, really, if you go back to the Old Testament sort of core of what that means, just really refers to a king. And in a more technical sense, it refers to the king of God's people. This idea of kingship was key to the Messiah's identity in the Old Testament. When the Jews thought about Messiah, or when they were thinking about Messiah, they were thinking primarily kingship. Salvation, redemption, those were things Messiah was going to do, but it was because he was the king who was coming to bring God's kingdom. But Jesus didn't really display this aspect of kingship in his earthly ministry, in part because he did not come to be a political Messiah in an earthly sense. He was not coming at this time to establish an actual throne and to give official political edicts. And so we don't see that, that aura of kingship 
in Jesus' life and ministry, do we? But he is the Messiah. And because he is Messiah, he is a king. He is the king. Kingship is essential to understanding Jesus' identity and character. And now as he is in this triumphal procession to Jerusalem, Jesus displays this regal aspect of his messianic identity. As he is riding to Jerusalem, Jesus is outwardly revealing that he is the king of God's kingdom. Now, how does Jesus reveal his messianic kingship? How does he reveal this idea that he is king in this triumphal procession? Let me give you three ways. First, Jesus reveals his kingship through his authority. Jesus reveals that he is king through his authority. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus had displayed his omnipotent power, right? We've seen his power over and over again in supernatural works over creation, over disease and disability, over demons, and even over death itself. Jesus performed these works not just simply because he had the power, but because he had the right to use that power, right? Satan has power, but Satan does not have the right to use his power for his own ends. Jesus has power, but Jesus has the right to use that power for divine purposes. That is the difference between power and authority. It's not just that power is important, but Jesus had the authority. He had the right to use that power to accomplish God's purposes. And again, we've seen that throughout his ministry. But we also see it here in a more subtle way. The kingly authority of Jesus is expressed in a more subtle way in verses 29 to 34. As Jesus is approaching these two small villages, Bethany and Bethphage, Jesus charges two of his disciples to go on into one of those villages and to secure a donkey for his procession to Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus has the authority to command his disciples. He has the authority to secure the donkey. That's kind of one of the odd aspects of this passage, right? That somebody, some owner, would just randomly give their donkey to these disciples that perhaps they don't know for this guy Jesus to use on his journey to Jerusalem. But Jesus has the authority to secure that donkey. He has the authority to use that donkey to display his kingship to show that he is actually king as he is proceeding to Jerusalem. Notice also Jesus' authority in the response of the disciples. These two disciples that receive this command from Jesus faithfully obey it. They follow through. They go into the village as Jesus orders. They fulfill his request to secure the donkey, even down to saying the exact words that Jesus gives them to make sure that they can actually bring the donkey back to him. So their obedience reflects submission to his authority. Jesus exercises his authority through his disciples. He is using them to accomplish his purposes, his plan. So in this whole scene... Jesus is the one who is in control. The scene seems mundane to us, but Jesus is in control of everything. He's in control of the circumstances. He's in control of the timing surrounding everything revolving the disciples' journey to Bethany and Bethphage, securing the donkey, bringing it back to him, and using it on the way to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, if you think about the Gospels and think about other moments in Jesus' life, this is par for the course for Jesus. Jesus is in complete control of his life and his ministry. You might remember back in John chapter 6, there were people after Jesus fed the 5,000, there were some people, many in the crowd, who wanted to make Jesus king that day. But Jesus got in the boat, crossed the Sea of Galilee to avoid the crowd. There were other times where there were people who were so upset and incensed that Jesus' messianic claims they sought to put him to death. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 4, they tried to throw Jesus over a cliff after he preached that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about Messiah. But Jesus was able to make his way through. There were other instances in Jesus' life where the Pharisees and the political leaders tried to trap Jesus and, and, and put him to death. But Jesus every time escaped those moments. Jesus is in complete control of the circumstances of his life. He's in complete control of the circumstances of this event. He's in complete control of the timing of when he will lay down his life to fulfill God's plan. All of those other times have not been the right time, but now is the right time for Jesus to display his kingship. So even in this mundane task of going to get a donkey, we see profoundly, once again, Jesus' authority. 
And that's good news for us. We need to, I had much more to say about this, but just meditate for a moment with me on the authority of Jesus. That should be a great comfort to us. It should be a great encouragement to us that Jesus is our sovereign king, that he rules and he reigns with kingly authority. And for us as followers of Christ, we can rest in that authority now, even in these moments of our lives. Christ has authority over all things. He has authority over our lives. His authority gives us assurance of salvation. So you never have to wonder or vacillate, am I really saved? If you're trusting in Christ, His authority means you have assurance. Christ's authority means that we have an advocate before God and a defender against the devil. Bruce is so right. One little word shall fell him, except it's not a little word. It's a great, magnificent name, is it not? The why will the devil lay down at the name of Jesus? Because of the authority of Jesus. He is the king. He has authority. Christ's authority gives us victory over sin and temptation. Are you struggling with sin and temptation in your life? Christ's authority over you to reign over you should give you great encouragement that you can succeed and overcome sin and temptation. Christ's authority gives us comfort and peace in the midst of our trials. Christ's authority should help us walk securely and faithfully in, in, in Him as we live out our days for His glory. So I pray that even as you struggle in this life, you rest in the authority of King Jesus. But we will also rest in the authority of Christ, the Christ authority forever. That's the hope of the Gospel. Christ will defeat all of His enemies. Every single one. Christ will rule and reign with justice and righteousness and peace forever. It will happen. And we will live in the security of His rule and the security of His peace forever. How awesome that is. There's not going to be a point in time where someone... If you read through, the, read through any history book, read through the Bible, how impotent human kings really are. Even the most powerful kings succumb to death, to disease, to someone who is more powerful than them. There will never be a point in eternity where there will be some adversary who can rise up against Jesus and overtake his authority. He will reign forever and ever. And that should give us great hope and great encouragement as followers of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, it's a little more troublesome. Even though you may not acknowledge Christ as Savior, even though you may not acknowledge him as King, you too are subject to the authority of Christ, whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not. Jesus is king. That's a non-negotiable truth of the gospel. Jesus is king. And he calls to submit to his kingship in repentance and faith. So if you're not a Christian, you cannot resist Christ's authority forever. We've been told that He will triumph over all of His enemies. You can submit to Him now willingly and experience the glory of a relationship with Him by repenting of your sins and trusting in Him for salvation, or you can continue your sinful rebellion against Him and be subject to His wrath and condemnation at the final judgment. So if you're not trusting in Christ, I plead with you to consider who He is, to see who He is, that He really is King, and that you must bow your knee to Jesus, that you should do it now. Not only will you avoid judgment later, but you will come to know the beauty and glory of a relationship with Him. So Jesus reveals His kingship and His authority. Secondly, Jesus reveals His kingship in His presentation. We see how Jesus presents Himself here as King. His appearance and His actions reflect outwardly signs of kingship. Notice that Jesus rides upon a donkey on His triumphal procession to Jerusalem. That donkey, we're told in verse 30, is an unbroken colt. No one has ever ridden it before. No one has ever sat upon it to ride it. It has not been spoiled by previous use. It's been set apart for a sacred purpose. Even when the disciples bring the donkey to Jesus, before they sit him on it, they lay their garments over top of it as a saddle, the sign of respect and honor. Jesus, as he proceeds, even has royal attendants, right? These disciples who are following him and, and cheering him on and celebrating him are his royal attendants. They, they put him on the donkey and they, they walk with him. They proceed with him along the way into Jerusalem. 
We also see that as the donkey proceeds on this journey, that even more and more disciples that are there are laying down their garments before the donkey. And so they, they are walking on their cloaks, acknowledging a dignitary's presence. This would be maybe the ancient equivalent, maybe even impoverished equivalent of rolling out the red carpet, right? If a celebrity were to, to come to some big, litzy event, there's a red carpet for them to walk on to show their, their importance and, their, and their, their fame, their prestige, right? This is an ancient way of rolling out the red carpet. They are, they are honoring Jesus and showing his dignity by laying their cloaks on the road. And as they make their way to Jerusalem, we see the shouts and the, the celebration of this, this cheering entourage in verse 38, where they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. So, Jesus is actually acting and appearing as if He is a King. He's given the outward signs of His kingship. And that's important because Jesus here, I think, is following biblical precedent. The presentation of Jesus as King here in this passage follows the biblical precedent of showing kingship. And I think it strengthens and reinforces this idea. Let me give you just a couple of passages to show that. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, Jehu, who is the commander of the Israelite army, Israelite here being the northern kingdom of Israel, the commander of the Israelite army, has been anointed by Elisha the prophet in private to be the next king of Israel. It's been kind of in secret in his his men, the, his, the, the soldiers in his army, as he sort of comes out publicly, want to know what happened. And so it says, Second Kings chapter 9, verse 12, And Jehu said, Thus and so Elisha spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And this was the response of his men. Then in haste, every man of them, every soldier, took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. They're acting in a royal way. Jehu has just been anointed to be the king over Israel, and they are laying down their garments before the king and acknowledging his kingship. You see the parallel? There's an even stronger one in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 to 40. Lengthy passage, but I think is very fitting. This is when King David is on his deathbed, about to die, and he is commanding his advisors, those his courtiers, that Solomon is to be his next king. He's actually giving them directions on, on Solomon's coronation. It says this, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. That's the spring, a source of fresh water near the temple. And let Zadok and Nathan there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall, sit, you shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah, and the Carathites, and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy. Do you see the parallel there? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is riding on the donkey into Jerusalem in much the same way that Solomon, David's son, is riding to his coronation through the streets of Jerusalem, going to the temple where he will be anointed. And the people, as, the, as Solomon is riding onto the temple where he's going to be anointed as king, are crying out in a loud voice, Long live King Solomon! There's rejoicing with great joy. In fact, it says the noise was so loud that the earth was beginning to split. How loud the noise was from that acclamation of Solomon. How much more then do we see the greater son of David, King Jesus, riding to Jerusalem on a donkey to take possession of his messianic throne? Jesus is following the biblical precedent, but to an even greater degree, showing that he is the greater son of David, 
that he is David's son who is the rightful heir to the throne, and that his kingdom will be greater than even David himself and Solomon who followed. So Jesus, what Jesus does here follows the biblical precedent. This is definitely Jesus giving off the heirs of his kingship. This presentation of Jesus as well also fulfills biblical prophecy. Let me just read you a few verses. The main one is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which the other Gospels record. They actually cite this verse, but it's obviously implied in Luke. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How much more unambiguous can we get? The king is coming to you, and how is the king coming? On a donkey, riding to the people to bring about their salvation. Or Genesis 49, verse, verses 8 through 12, which is a little bit more obscure, but I think it ties together here. This is, Je- this is Jacob prophesying on his deathbed. He goes to each one of his sons, and when he gets to Judah, he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And we see some of those same images there, right? Jacob's prophecy is about Israel's future king who would be one of Judah's descendants. That even though there was no king yet at this time, one of Judah's descendants would become king. But Jacob here even foresees through this the time of the true and great king, the Messiah. We see evidences in this Genesis passage to his rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. To his salvation, he is going to break the neck of his enemies. That the people would be brought to him in obedience. And we even see there the reference to the donkey that kind of ties all this together. The final prophecy comes from Psalm 118, verses 19 to 26. The psalmist David writes, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, O pray. That's Hosanna. We hear that, see that word in the other gospel accounts of this passage. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We see that, that those who are, who are the crowd, the crowd of disciples surrounding Jesus here are declaring these very words in fulfillment of this passage. The psalm records here Israel's plea for salvation. They are distressed. They are, they are under, under turmoil, under great trouble, severe trouble. They're looking for salvation and they're looking specifically for the one whom the Lord would send, the one who would come in the name of the Lord to bring them that promised salvation. Now, during the time of Israel's monarchy, during their history, the people would sing this psalm as the king would make his way to the temple to worship. But now, Jesus' disciples are singing these words to Jesus, acknowledging his his kingship and praising him for his kingship. So Jesus' triumphal procession to Jerusalem reveals that he is the Messiah, the true king of Israel, the rightful heir of David's throne. He is coming to save his people and take possession of his kingdom. And if we can just pause here for a second, we just need to remember that nothing has changed in 2,000 years since the triumphal entry of Jesus. He is still king. Now that time, Jesus did not meet the Jewish messianic expectations. He did not come as a political messiah to take up immediate rule on David's throne. His mission was primarily spiritual in nature. He came to bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And that ministry still continues through us today as we live in this world waiting for Jesus to return. But even though he has departed and he sits at the Father's right hand, he is still king. He is reigning over his people as we celebrate this morning coming to church together and singing songs of praise and hearing God's word proclaimed to us. 
King Jesus is ruling over his assembly. We are a picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus is ruling over his people. Even in the midst of that rule, we know that the devil is still working, right? He's still out there. He's still wreaking his havoc. He's exercising his false authority in this present evil age. But Christ still rules his kingdom. He is continuing his mission of redeeming his people. He is saving them. He is transforming their lives through the gospel. That all is still happening. But one day that's going to come to an end. Every foe and every power will be brought into subjection to his authority. And Jesus will demolish the kingdom of this, of this age. And he will exercise his messianic authority to its fullest extent. He will reign forever and ever. So Jesus reveals his kingship through his authority, through his presentation, finally through his humility. Kind of in an ironic way, Jesus reveals his kingship ironically in humility. Now, the kingship imagery is clear and obvious. I hope I've made that case to this point. But it is somewhat muted. It is somewhat toned down, right? Jesus, how does he ride into Jerusalem? He rides on a humble donkey, not on a regal horse as we might expect at this time. Right? Again, Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. We might expect something more like we read in Revelation, that will happen in the future. Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. When Jesus returns, he'll come in that regal glory, in the full-blown glory of, of Christ and of God, he comes on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. But he comes in humility on a donkey. Jesus is accompanied here by ordinary disciples, not by, by a great army or, or by a host of angels. So Jesus gives the appearance of being a king. He doesn't lavishly call attention to himself as other earthly rulers might if they were in this situation. Jesus' appearance and actions lack the air and accoutrement of splendor and regality. Jesus doesn't impose his onlookers or, or force them to, to proclaim him as king, though other earthly rulers might. Jesus is king, but in this presentation he is a humble king. He has come not to be served, but to serve. Now we know and understand that the disciples do not yet let me say it this way. We know and understand what's happening, right? We've read the rest of the story. The disciples know, but they don't understand what's happening. They, they haven't yet experienced what we have read in the full testimony of the gospel. Jesus is humble for a reason. He must first be rejected and suffer and be crucified to fulfill his messianic purpose. You can go back and read that in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. Jesus kept telling his disciples, Luke records it six times, that he told them he had to first suffer and be rejected and be crucified, to be killed before he could lay claim to his throne. And in fact, Psalm 118, which we just read a minute ago, and has that great statement that the disciples uh, 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 cry out here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Go back earlier a few verses, Psalm 118, verse 22 says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So even in this great celebration of God's salvation coming to his people, there is the promise that this coming king would be rejected. Jesus must lay down his life as a willing sacrifice in order to lay claim to his throne and save his people. Paul writes it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even on this triumphal procession, when King Jesus is praised and celebrated, we have a foreshadowing of the criticism and the rejection that is to come. The Pharisees are there in verse 39 and they're rebuking Jesus and telling him, you need to rebuke your disciples. They're declaring heresy. They're declaring blasphemy. We see that that's actually part and parcel of what he's going to endure 
in the coming week. So King Jesus approaches Jerusalem in humility. He's preparing himself for the rejection and the suffering that awaits him. We must remember that Christ's humility was necessary to fulfill his messianic mission. Jesus could only save us if he shed his blood on the cross. Which again, it's ironic if you consider here the Jewish perspective of this. If Jesus had done what the Pharisees wanted him to do, if Jesus had met the expectations of the Jews as they're crying out for salvation, their sins would never have been atoned for. They would still be lost. The irony is that what they hoped for would have led to their own destruction. There would be no salvation for them if Jesus had met their expectations. His humility through suffering and shame is the basis of our salvation. And so we should be grateful that we worship a crucified Messiah. It is only in humility, laying his life down for us, that we could have our sins forgiven and that we can enter into a new relationship with him. That understanding should cause us to be grateful and should cause us to be humble, to humble ourselves before him. At the same time, we should also be reminded that when Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom, he will not come in humility. He will come in glory. At that time, he will fulfill every part of his messianic ministry. His kingdom will be established. His enemies will be defeated. He will reign in glory. And we will experience the full promise of our salvation. Hallelujah and amen. So in this triumphal procession, Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. He is the king of God's kingdom. All right, that was a long point number one. Do points two and three a little quicker, okay? These two deal with the responses to this point we just made. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messianic King. How do people respond to him? Observation number two, because Jesus is the Messiah, he must be praised. Because Jesus is the Messiah, he must be praised. Notice that in this passage, in verses 37 and 38, the disciples lead this chorus of praise for Jesus on his procession. Because he is King. They praise him because he is the divinely appointed king. He's not just any old king coming to step up to this, to this job, right? He is God's divinely appointed, divinely sanctioned king. He is the one, as they proclaim, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God has sent him to be their king. And so if he is king by right and by title, Jesus deserves their praise. And in fact, even in the face of, of messianic criticism, of, of, excuse me, of Pharisaic criticism, in verse 39, in verse 40, Jesus affirms the disciples that they are doing the good and right thing by giving him praise. The disciples also praise him because he has come to fulfill God's purpose. He has come to bring salvation to them as God had promised. Notice again that the disciples are singing Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The one who comes in the name of the Lord brings the salvation that they seek. Therefore, when the Messiah comes, the people of God praise him because he is bringing their salvation. The disciples understood this somewhat. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah and they understood that in some way he was bringing God's salvation to them. Notice that this idea of salvation is further noted in the word peace in verse 38, right? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is an important aspect of understanding what salvation is. Salvation brings peace between God and man. Go back to the very beginning of creation, right? Adam's sin and rebellion brought enmity with God. By his sin, Adam despised God's goodness. He rejected God's authority. He disobeyed God's command. And he exalted himself. All of those things broke harmony. They broke fellowship. They broke relationship, the peaceful relationship that God, that Adam enjoyed with God at the beginning of creation. And so from that point on until this point today, and until that day when Christ comes, every human being has been living in war against God. 
But as part of Jesus' ministry, as part of his messianic ministry, Jesus reconciles us to God and establishes a new relationship with him characterized by peace. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Totally cut off. But now in Christ Jesus, who, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has brought reconciliation. He has brought new relationship. Romans 5.1. Paul writes it this way. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is king, then we must praise him. We must praise Him. One day all will praise King Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is King. But for those of us who are the people of God who acknowledge Christ as Messiah even now, it is our right, it is our duty, it is our privilege to praise the King. That's why we gather every week. Why it's so important to gather with the body so we can give praise to King Jesus. He is worthy of it. But each day, I hope that you are giving praise to God throughout your day because He is King. But there's a second type of response to Jesus' kingship, and that is rejection. It brings us to the last observation, observation number three. Because Jesus is the Messiah, He will be rejected. Because Jesus is the Messiah, He will be rejected. Jesus, again, had already disclosed this to His disciples. Rejection would be a real response to his kingship. He knew that he would be rejected, and he prophesied it to his disciples at least six times. We see that rejection rear its head in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. That criticism there. The disciples there are, are praising Jesus, they're acknowledging him, they're celebrating him on this, this procession, but the Pharisees responded with criticism. They think the disciples are speaking wrongly about Jesus, and so they want Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to call them to stop. Don't let them say these things about you when they are not true. But Jesus answers back in verse 40 with this word of affirmation, right? He's saying that it is right and good for them to praise him because what they are saying about him is true. Jesus is the king. He is fulfilling the promise of God's word given to the prophets of old in the Old Testament. Jesus' disciples are simply responding to the truth in faith, that, that truth given to the prophets. They are responding in faith. That faith is, re- is reflected in their submission to Jesus' authority and their obedience to his word. But Jesus goes on to say that even if the disciples held their tongues, the stones would cry out. In other words, if no one else would bear testimony to Jesus, the stones would, and they would declare his praise. Now, what exactly is Jesus referring to here by the stones? It could be a reference more broadly to creation, of the stones as, as created things, inanimate created things would, would cry out. In other words, Jesus is saying here that all creation would respond in praise to the glory of God, acknowledging their creator as he proceeds on this path to Jerusalem. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 4, give us that understanding. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And so it's ironic here that even if human beings would hold their lips shut, the very stones, the rest of creation would, would cry out. Again, that's ironic because whom, of all his creation, whom has God blessed with the instruments of praise? To whom has God given a mouth and a voice box and lungs and the ability to draw in air and to speak words out of praise? And then who among whom has has the only aspect of creation, the only member of creation who has withheld the very thing that God has given to them to be able to articulate that praise. It's ironic here that the Pharisees don't give praise to God 
give praise to Christ because they have been created for this very purpose. And God has given them the promise for this very purpose. And yet they do not. But this reference to stones may also be a reference to judgment. If you look at verse 44, you see that Jesus prophesies there about the destruction of Jerusalem, saying that, that there would be, the judgment of God would come upon them and they would not leave one stone upon another in you. In other words, the stones, there might be a reference to the judgment that God is going to bring to those who reject Jesus and the salvation that he brings. God's judgment against those who reject Jesus will prove that he is indeed king. These things would happen because they rejected Jesus. The stones left in the wake of destruction will justify Jesus' messianic claims. Those who wrongly reject Jesus will suffer his wrath, and by that judgment they will know that Jesus is king. So either way, either one of those interpretations, I think, is it, it could be plausible. Either way, the disciples are still right to praise Jesus, even if they don't understand fully what they are doing. And the Pharisees are very wrong about withholding praise and criticizing Jesus for the disciples' praise. But even though the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus is wrong, it is necessary. Remember that in order to fulfill his ministry, Jesus must be rejected. He must suffer and die at the hands of sinful men. In God's providence, the Pharisees and Jewish leadership will temporarily gain the upper hand and lead the Jewish people to reject Jesus that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. But that rejection ultimately resulted in the triumph of Jesus and the salvation of his people. This is what Peter said in his sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It had to happen. This is the way it needed to happen. God would use this. He would use, he had ordained the death and resurrection of Jesus so that all of God's enemies would be defeated and his people would be saved. So Jesus' rejection fulfills God's plan. But it's interesting to me that Jesus still weeps over those who reject him in verses 41 to 44. He laments over his rejection. The word wept in verse 41 means to sob excessively or to wail. Jesus is broken by their rejection of him. He weeps grievously over the Jews whom God had promised to bring salvation to. This is what they were looking forward to, what they were expecting. They had been the recipients of God's promises and covenants, yet they failed to recognize the arrival of God's salvation in his Messiah. And so in verses 43 and 44, Jesus pronounces a judgment against them. The Romans utterly will destroy Jerusalem, and that happens in 70 AD. We'll talk more about that in a future week. But it's hard not to see here the, par- the fulfillment of the parable of the Minas from last week, right? Those citizens who hated the nobleman and did not want him to reign over them. Remember what happens to them in the last verse of that parable? They are brought to him and they are slaughtered. So Jesus' lamentation here offers a sober warning to those who reject Christ. If you're not a Christian or you've pushed Christ away or or you are not following Him, you haven't submitted yourself to Him, understand that your rejection of Him is really rebellion against Him. You might temporarily escape His judgment in the few years that you have here on earth. But when Jesus returns in the fullness of His glory, it will be a day of reckoning and terrible judgment. So I plead with you, recognize that Jesus is King. Abdicate the throne of your heart. Abandon your rebellion against God. Submit to Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus for salvation. He will reconcile you. He will make peace with you. He will adopt you into His family. The disciples celebrate. King Jesus is here. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming in triumph. He's coming to take His possession of His kingdom. They may not have fully understood what they were saying or doing, but despite their misunderstanding and their best efforts, they did more than they knew 
They anticipated the day when the people of God would gather together and shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we who proclaim that today realize the fullness uh, of all that declaration meant. That we have to understand that Christ has established His kingdom through His death and resurrection. And that He is still working. He is still building His kingdom. He is taking up His throne. He will destroy every enemy and He will save His people. So the triumphal procession that we see in this passage is a picture and a promise of the day when King Jesus will return. Not on a donkey, but on a horse. Not in humility, but in honor. Not veiled, but clearly revealed to do away with His enemies once and for all and to establish the glory of His eternal reign to its fullest extent. For that day we long... And for that day we cry out, Maranatha, come, King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage about the kingship of Christ. We thank you for this reminder, Lord. It oftentimes goes, maybe sometimes under the radar. One of those things that we just assume, one of those things that we just know is kind of old hat to us. But Lord, it is true and it has profound ramifications for our lives individually, for our life as a church, for our life as God's people universally, and for your purposes eschatologically, what you will do when all things come together. Lord, my prayer is this morning that your people would be filled with joy that Christ is King, that we have bowed the knee, and that we would abandon the attempts to keep pushing you off the throne and climbing back on ourselves. And we will instead submit ourselves, bow our knee, we'll obey you, we'll keep praising you, remembering your kingship and how that has ramifications for our life. It is a blessing for us. At the same time, Father, I pray for those among us this morning who don't know you, maybe aren't walking with you, that they would examine their own heart, that they would too bow their knee, confess with their mouth that Jesus is King and He is Lord. And may today be a day of salvation for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.